Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible there with you, I invite you to turn there, Mark 14, verses 1 to 11, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the Word of God. Mark writes, it was now, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Since the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing Uh, on his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, once again we come to you, we thank you for your word, and we, but we know that we are helpless to understand it rightly on our own, so we need you, as always, to teach us, and we ask that you might work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I I think I've mentioned it a few times over the last uh, couple months or so that uh, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, it's very. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's 16 chapters long. Uh, it's chapters 11 through 16. You know, basically a third of the entire Gospel of Mark, or more or less about one week. If you think of Jesus' you know earthly ministry as a, around a three-year period, it's interesting to think that Mark, who's this, you know, his is the Gospel of action. He always talks about what Jesus does. He's always using the word immediately to move things along and to describe in detail the actions and works and, and, and somewhat the teachings of Christ, that he would spend a third of the book, roughly, even a little bit more than that, really. These are actually the longest chapters in the Gospel of Mark as well. Uh, so he spends really over a third, it might be closer to a half of the book, like John does, on one week, the Passion Week of Christ. The word passion, when you think of, you know, the movie The Passion of the Christ, we talk about the Passion Week. The, the word passion is the word for suffering. So it's, it's describing the sufferings of Christ, especially the, that of the cross, which we celebrate this week, especially on Good, Good Friday. Um, so I think it should be, it should be telling for you and me that Mark spends that much time on one week. Uh, everything Jesus said and did is important, but this last week, is the most important of all. I think it tells us that the his sufferings, his crucifixion, his death and burial and resurrection are really at the heart of what the gospel is, is about. 
Well, Mark chapter 11, some months ago we looked at that. Uh, that is where this whole thing started, that, that this, this last week. And where does it start? Palm Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry, as it's called, when the, the crowds hailed Jesus on his way into Jerusalem with loud hosannas. And, and as he came into the city after all that time and waiting... Uh, well, Mark chapter 14, once we get to Mark 14, you know, if, if 11 through 16 are kind of the, the last week, well, Mark 14 is kind of the home stretch. Here's where Mark starts zeroing in even more. Even within this week, he spends a lot of time just on the last few days. And, and Mark 14 is where we find the betrayal, uh, even the plans for the betrayal and the arrest of, of Christ. Uh, chapter 15, the second to last chapter, includes the trials and crucifixion of Christ, which we celebrate every Good Friday. And then finally, chapter 16, we get to see the glorious resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate every Easter Sunday. And really every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, if you think about it. Well, our text this morning, this short text, these first 11 verses of Mark 14, they tell us of, of the murderous hatred and the murderous intent of the unbelieving religious leaders of Israel towards their Messiah, towards Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the first couple verses, they tell us uh, at the very end, it it kind of bookends the the passage, right? The first two verses are the chief priests and scribes plotting to kill Jesus, to destroy him. And then, shockingly, somewhat, the last two verses, chapter 10, or verse 10 and 11, shows us the betrayal of, of one of the twelve, of Judas Iscariot, uh, kind of joining in with those chief priests and scribes to to betray Christ into their hands, and you know you would think that of all the people in the world at that time, you know, out of everybody that lived on this earth at the time of Christ, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, uh, chief priests, and such, that they you know. They and, and also somebody who's, who's one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, of all the people on this earth, they should have been the most likely uh, to believe in Christ, to love Christ, to follow him. They should have been the least likely to reject him, to, to hate him, to seek to kill him, to betray him. And yet that's exactly what they, they do. Now, the wickedness of those things, I think, should... Uh, It should shock us. You know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, which I know many of us in this room have, and you've read your Bible who knows how many times, and you've heard how many Palm Sunday sermons and Easter sermons and Good Friday sermons, all good things, but you kind of, you get so familiar with these details that they don't really have the impact on you, on us, that they should. It should stun us that the chief priests and scribes wanted him dead. And they've wanted him dead from chapter 3 on. This, this is, you know, if you read Mark's gospel, it's not very hard to do in one sitting. If you read all the way back in Mark six verse, Mark three verse six, they were already plotting to kill him then. So this is just one more. This is kind of the whole thing coming full circle. Uh, but the fact that they wanted him dead, the fact that that, you know, think about Judas, one of the twelve, a very select company, somebody who accompanied Christ for roughly three years, got to see him in action, got to see the good that he did, got to hear him teach. What a privilege that must have been to hear him teach face-to-face, to see him uh, willingly suffering humility and things for, for the salvation of people, and yet he willingly went to the scribes. They didn't seek him out. He went to them willingly for money to have Jesus 
put to death. All these things, I think, are a testimony to the wickedness and depravity of fallen man outside of Christ. If anybody on their own could have come to Christ and believed with no help, no outside influence of, of God's grace by his spirit, it would have been them. And yet, what do we see them doing? You know, it's, it's, what's the saying there, but for the grace of God go I? I mean, that's all of us. We all would have been a part of that same group. Well, thankfully, kind of sandwiched between the first two verses of our text and those sad last two verses with the, the betrayal of, uh, from Judas, uh, these things that lead to Christ's death on the cross, Mark also points us to another account, another story of, of an unnamed woman, at least in his text, who came to Jesus at, while he was at Bethany, and instead of plotting his death, instead of betraying him, what does she do? She lavishes this extraordinary gift upon him, this gift of, of, of perfumed ointment. ointment. It must have been rather expensive from what the text tells us. Then she, she breaks it. You know, once it's broken, there's no putting it back. It's, it's got to be used. And she pours the whole thing over his head. This, this great act of love is kind of right in the middle of it. Mark spends more time on that than he does the other two things. Well, let's, let's look at our text this morning. Let's look at the first thing we see, and that's the plot against Jesus in verses 1 through 2. Mark says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they wanted him dead. They, were finally, they finally had the, the, the wherewithal to do it, and yet, what, were they, what did they not want to do? Could they have just had him arrested right in front of everybody? They, they could have. And they purposely tried not to. They, they didn't want to make a big, a big scene. They were afraid of the reaction of, of the crowds, of the people. Now, the, the timing of this incident and of all the events in our text, um, I think we might be tempted to kind of gloss them over and not really think about them, but it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that these things happen right before the Passover and right before the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. That, that might seem kind of unimportant, but that little detail that Mark adds at the beginning of the text, I think is, I don't want to say it's the key. Everybody, that's an overused thing to say, but it's, it's, it's a key to helping us understand what goes on in the text and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. We have to keep that in mind, what the Passover uh, was about what the feast of unleavened bread was about, and I think that will help us perceive better how what what what's happening to Christ throughout the rest of of uh, the Gospel of Mark. Now the Passover, that feast of unleavened bread, that uh, company, they were kind of it was really one, two festivals in one. The feast of unleavened bread happened right after the Passover, so it, in a lot of ways it's like peanut butter and jelly. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, so it's two, but it's really one week-long celebration and holy day and and feast. Uh, and what what was it about? What was it a commemoration of? It was a commemoration of what in a lot of ways was the salvation event of the Old Testament, and that's the Exodus. God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt uh, by a, by a might, mighty and outstretched hand through Moses, through even the, the lamb, the sacrificed lamb on the, the Passover, if you want to look up these things, uh, maybe this afternoon, read Exodus chapters 12 and 13. 12 talks about the Passover, talks a little bit about the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then chapter 13 details the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, on the Passover, each household uh, was to take a, a one-year-old lamb without blemish. Uh, Exodus 12.5, they were to kill that lamb and take some of the blood, it says in verse uh, 7, 
and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Every time I read that, I'm struck at the mental picture of that. Think about the, the lintel and the doorposts of a house. What shape, if you're going to, when you're kids, you ever do the connect the dots puzzles? And you draw the lines between the dots. Well, it's a connected dot puzzle. Think of a doorway. you got the top of the doorway and you got two posts on the side. Connect the dots and what do you get? You get a cross. It's, it's, it's a picture. It's a pretty foreshadowing picture of, of the cross of Christ. Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, the Lord tells Moses this. He says, For, this, is, this is why you had to have the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the house that you were in. It says, God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will what? I will pass over you. That's where you get the word Passover from. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, they weren't just in because they were Hebrews. God didn't say, he could have said, but he did not. God did not say, you know, I'm God, I can tell an Egyptian from, a, from an Israelite, uh, and I'll pass over, and if you're an Israelite, you're, you're good to go, and if you're an Egyptian, you know, too bad, so sad, sorry about that. No, he says to the Hebrews, you know, you want to be spared, here's what you have to do. You take that lamb, that one-year-old male lamb, without blemish. Why, why does it have to be without blemish? It's a picture of Christ, who's without sin. Sacrifice that lamb, eat that lamb, leave none of it till morning. Put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts of the house in which you eat it, in which you are. And when God sees the blood, what does he do? Passes by. Why is that? Because a substitution has been made for that household. Something, a picture of Christ, something has died in, in their place. Well, the very next verse in Exodus chapter 12, it's verse 14, states that the Passover was to be a memorial day, like a holiday, to be kept as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. So it wasn't just a one-time thing. It's what God actually did during the Exodus, right? The tenth plague was the, the death of the firstborn and all, all male children in, in Egypt. Uh, but after that, they, they were to have the same thing memorialized every every year throughout their generations as a statute forever. And it was to be the beginning of a week-long feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the, the, the feast, the celebration, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a somber thing. It was supposed to be a, a celebration and a feast. Why did they use unleavened bread? It says because they left Egypt in such haste. They couldn't wait for the, you couldn't even wait for the dough to rise. You had to get out while while the getting uh, was good. So all this whole thing was a celebration of God's mercy. This whole, the Passover every year, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was to be a reminder every year of God's mercies in saving his people from, from slavery in the land of, of Egypt. And so this was, this was a, a, a reminder, a party and a reminder of God's mercy, of God's salvation of his people through the death of a substitute, the Lamb of God that he had provided. Now, now think about the text. The the thing that people should have been thinking about was God's salvation uh, through the, the provision of this substitute, this Lamb of God. And what do you find the chief priests, the ones who were supposed to be kind of running that, 
and, and getting things ready, the scribes, what are they doing at this important time of year? You, know, you could think of it kind of like Christmas. This is the big one. This is the one that you want to celebrate every year. And instead of getting ready busily for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, they were doing something else. They weren't being mindful of God's mercy and grace in his salvation of his people from the, in the Exodus. Mark says in verse 1, they were busy doing what? They were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. Their mind wasn't on God's mercy. Their mind was on killing God's Messiah. That's, that's what their hearts were set upon at this time of year. Now, there's some irony in the text. I think this little detail about the Passover uh, points us to some, some irony that they were, without realizing it, even in their wicked plans, which were definitely wicked, they weren't good, uh, they were sinful things, they were actually unwittingly preparing the real Passover lamb for slaughter without even realizing it. God was going to sovereignly use even their sin in the accomplishment of his purposes for saving his people. It doesn't excuse what they did at all. They were still guilty for it, but God turned even their wickedness towards the accomplishment of his purposes for salvation. Now, not only that, but notice that Mark points out that the chief priests and scribes, they tried not to seize Jesus during the feast. Mark says, you know, it's Passover, it's a feast of unleavened bread. They knew that. They didn't want to look bad, they didn't want to cause a riot, and said, okay, we're going to do this, but we'll do it after everybody leaves. We'll do it after the Passover, after the the, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they, they were worried about an uproar from the people, a riot. Now, why is that? Passover, you know, there was one place for it, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And so you had pilgrims from all over the place, you know, flooding into Jerusalem, and so the city's population uh, swelled who knows how, how, much, how, much, how many more people were there at the time, but it was a full house. And so a riot's bad with a half-empty house, but with the place bursting at the seams, it could have been quite, quite, the, uh, quite the scene. And remember, some of those crowds, what were they doing on Palm Sunday? Those same people, a lot of them, were the ones lining the streets and putting palm fronds and their own cloaks and jackets and whatnot on the ground, and they were hailing Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who brings the, the kingdom of his father, David. They, they looked at him rightly, I mean, not all the way, the way, they didn't understand everything, but they looked at him as the Messiah, and they weren't wrong. Now, take the religious leaders of the day killing Jesus in, in full view of, of all those people, and what do you think would have happened? They, they weren't dumb. They were wicked, but they weren't Dumb. Well, they, they planned on doing it in their own way, in their own time, but God, as we see in our text, God had other plans, didn't he? Jesus wasn't going to be arrested and crucified after Passover and after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His only begotten Son, the Christ, the, the, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, was going to lay down his life for an atonement for the sins of his people on Passover. There's a reason that it had to be on Passover. It's, it's, it's the fulfillment of the Passover. God's purposes were not going to fail. And so these wicked men, even Judas, were, without realizing it, causing God's plans to come to pass. Well, the second thing we get to see in our text in verses 3 through 9 is this, uh, you know, kind of this respite from the horror of the, the plot and the betrayal is that uh, you see this, this anointing of Jesus, this, this lavish gift of this woman, uh, unnamed woman, in verse 3, Mark says, And while he was at Bethany in the house 
of Simon the leper as he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, before we get too far into this, notice the mercy and grace of Christ that's on display here in the kinds of people that he spends time with. Look at who he's, look whose house he's in. Look at, look at the kinds of people he willingly associates with in the text. He's, he's in a house. He's eating a meal with them. He's in Bethany. Now, remember, he was just at the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. So he's not too far from where he was giving that discourse. Bethany's not far from there. And he's, it might look like an odd phrase to you. He was reclining at table. That's, that's how you would eat back then. We didn't have, you know, the high seats that we think of now. You would kind of, it was almost like being on the floor and leaning on the table kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a picture of a meal. So Jesus is basically sitting down for a meal or some, something like that in the house of Simon the leper. Now Simon had almost certainly been healed and cleansed from that leprosy, but somehow the name stuck. There's a lot of Simons. This is the one that had leprosy. But Jesus was not ashamed to spend time in his home to eat a meal with him and maybe even speak there Think about what that means, what that must have meant to Simon. At least for a, for a time, he was an outcast. Maybe the nickname Simon the leper was another kind of adding insult to injury, but Jesus, it didn't matter to him. He went to his home, he ate with him, he probably lodged there as well. And then on top of that, you have this unnamed woman. The other gospels uh, say that her name was Mary, uh, possibly the sister of, of Lazarus. Uh, she came in and she kind of disrupts the whole thing by pouring out a rather costly gift of perfumed ointment over Jesus' head. Now, uh, you know, Mark kind of uh, is at pains. He's kind of piling word on top of word in the text to try to, to impress upon us, the readers, what a big deal this must have been for her to do. It was, you know, I, I don't know what pure nard is, but it, it's whatever it was, it was pure. It cost a lot of money. Remember they said that it could have been sold for 300 denarii, that's, people have come up with, that, that's basically a year's wages for a laborer. That's not nothing. That's a lot of money. This might have been the most expensive thing she owned, and it was the kind of thing, you know, like a piggy bank. The old school, now they make them, they cheat, right? Now they have a thing you can pull the bottom out. Well, in the old days, a piggy bank, what did you have to do to get the money out? You had to break it. So you really had to think, well, there's some wisdom in that. You had to think twice you had to think long and hard before you decided to spend that money because once you break that bank, there's no putting it back in. There's no not enough glue to put it back together and save that money. Once she broke this container, she had to use it. This may have been a family heirloom. It may have been passed down as kind of a nest egg from one to the other. This was her nest egg. This was probably the most expensive thing she owned. And what did she do? She gave it to Jesus, poured it over his over his head. Now, Mark says that some of those who witnessed it were indignant or angry. They weren't just, you know, tuss, tuss. They, they were, they were, they couldn't believe she did what she did. They were angry. They were angry at her. Uh, they, they complained about the gift that she gave to Jesus as being wasteful, a waste of a valuable commodity that should have been sold for a large sum of money and given the proceeds to the poor. It even says in verse five, they scolded her. It's one thing to disagree with someone. It's one thing to kind of mutter under your breath, oh, look what she did. Can you believe what she did? They, they were they were so bold as to basically yell at her. Like, what on earth do you think you're doing? You, you could have, you know, fed how many people and clothed how many people. 
They rebuked her in anger for the love she showed to Christ. Now, what a contrast that woman is to the chief priests and scribes and even to Judas himself who were seeking Christ's death. And what was Jesus' response to the woman's gift? It doesn't matter what everybody else thought, but what did Jesus say about her gift? Look at verses 6 through 9. Mark says, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. You know, you can have a whole house full of people yelling at you. But if Jesus says good job, none of that matters. The one whose opinion mattered the most told her uh, good, good job. He commended her for what she did. Now, those other people in the house and the other Gospels mentioned they were the, the disciples. These weren't just, you know, Simon and his friends. The, Jesus' own disciples were the ones yelling at her. Uh, they, they thought it was wasteful. They thought it was overly extravagant, but not Jesus. Uh, he, re, you know, they rebuked her. He rebuked them right back and commended her, calling her act of kindness a beautiful thing, or King James has it, a good work. You know, we all would love to hear that from Jesus' lips. You did a good work. That's, that's, that's what she heard, and that's what they heard him say about what she had done. What a blessing it must have been for her to hear such words right from Jesus himself about what she had done. Everybody else was criticizing her actions, but the one whose opinion mattered the most uh, gladly and graciously approved of her and what she did. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, There is never wanting or lacking a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the, to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. In short, they regard it as waste, just like these people did. Now, if, if you follow Jesus but don't get too carried away with it, most people will, will, will not worry, not give you much problem. But if you, if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, then they're going to have a problem. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then they're going to have a problem. And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God anyway. Do, do whatever you can for Christ and his, his gospel anyway. Loving and serving Christ and his gospel with all you are and with all you have is never wasted time, effort, or money. The world, don't worry about the world, what the world thinks about what you do. If you're serving Christ if, according to his word from a sincere heart, Jesus is pleased by it. And that's the one that counts. Now, Jesus goes further than that. He, he kind of unmasks the pretended piety of those who were rebuking the woman. You know, what, what did they say? What, what did they say was so wasteful about what she did? What could have been done with that flask? Instead of breaking it and pouring the whole thing on Jesus' head, you could have sold it for 300 denarii or a, or a year's wages. 
And you could have given it, you know, they, they, they feigned concern for the poor. Oh, all the people that could have been fed uh, with the proceeds from this, this uh, waste of a gift. And what does Jesus basically tell them? He basically says, you know, if you're so concerned for the poor, no one's stopping you. Right? I don't see you guys digging for your wallets. I see you digging for her wallet. If you want to help the poor, go. They're, they're always going to be here with you in this life. Go help them, but don't argue with her. She's done something good. You could do good as well instead of sitting here criticizing this poor woman who's given maybe the greatest things she had in this world for Christ. They would always have the poor with them to do good for them, but they weren't always going to have Jesus in their midst to do good for him. Now, in the parallel account in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, he tells us a little thing about Judas here. It says, but Judas Iscariot, John 12, 4 to 6, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and he says, who was about to betray him, said, this is at the same account, right? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Whose words are those? Judas. And then it says, he said this, this is John's words, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. What was Jesus? What was Judas thinking about? Judas. And, and what he lost, what money he lost by that not being sold. It was all about the money to him. It wasn't about Christ at all to him. Now that detail that John adds, that Mark omits, uh, in some way might explain at least part of his motives for betraying Christ. Jesus was costing him money. Jesus was not being, uh, was very inconvenient for him. Uh, he, his, one of his motives for betraying Christ must have been, uh, a desire for that, for that money. And, and what, how do we know that? What did the chief priests promise him to betray Christ? A sum of money, elsewhere we're told it's 30 pieces of, of silver, a much lower sum than uh, the cost of this flask of, of ointment. In other words, Judas, when push came to shove, Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. And he, Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. Well, guess which one Judas ended up serving? Money or mammon. Now, notice also the Lord commends the woman because she did what she could, verse 8. Leave her alone what she did what she could. She, she did what she had uh, within her to do. Now, that expensive jar of ointment was probably the only thing of value that she had. It was the one thing that she could give away, but what if she gladly gave it to Jesus? She was happy to do it. She would give that to him as the one who not longer after that, at this very day, was going to give up his life for her, for her salvation. What was the flask of ointment compared to that? It was nothing. Had, had the others in the room done what they could for Christ? Probably not. We don't, there's nothing in the text that suggests it. They were, they were with him. Had they given something up for him? It seems doubtful when you think about their reaction. Maybe their reaction was, you know, they realized that at some level what she had done was so good and they had done nothing. And it stung their conscience. And so, you know, with this I would say to, to you and to everyone who reads this, do what you can for the Lord. Don't, don't worry about what you can't do. There's lots of things that you and I can't do. Jesus doesn't ask you to solve world hunger. 
Jesus doesn't ask you to solve, you know, bring about world peace on your own. But you can feed your neighbor. You can do good for the person that's next to you. And that's what she did. She did what she could. That's all Jesus asks you to do. Do what you can for the sake of Christ. And in verse 8, Jesus also mentions the real significance of what she had done in pouring out that ointment, that expensive ointment over Jesus' head. She wasn't wasting anything. She was anointing Jesus for burial beforehand. Think about that. Did they understand what he said when he said that? I don't, we don't, we don't know. She was anointing him beforehand for burial. So what do you see here in the text? Is it's, it's never far from the surface of the text that Jesus is going to die. That Jesus is going to be crucified is never far from the surface of the text in these events leading up to his death on the cross. And we can see from this that it was on Jesus' mind at the time. He's thinking about his death already. And he brings it up in this conversation with these people in the house. So what's he doing? He's once again, he's basically foretelling his own death to the people that he's with. He's foretelling his own death in the place of of sinners. And he adds the following words in verse 9. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world and wherever the gospels and the gospel of Mark is read and preached, this woman's actions are also going to be made known. This is happening right here, right now. We're fulfilling part of what Jesus says in this text. This, this woman is commended not only by Christ to that group of people in the house, but everywhere all over the world throughout the history of the church where the gospel is preached and this text is made known, her deeds will be made known and memorialized for her as well. Now, notice what else this signifies. When Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what does that imply? Well, it implies the gospel is going to be proclaimed in the whole world, right? But what also does that mean? That that not just her actions are going to be memorialized and, and, and to untold millions of people will know what she did, um, but it implies that Jesus is going to rise from the grave, if Jesus dies and stays in the grave, the gospel is not going to be proclaimed throughout the world. So in this, in this text, in this rebuke of their hardness of heart, we actually have Jesus prophesying of his own death, upcoming, very soon to come death. I mean, that, who knows how long that stuff was going to last on him. It had to be soon enough. He was going to die really soon. And he was also going to rise from the grave. So Good Friday and Easter, the cross and the resurrection of Christ are never far underneath the surface of this text in Mark chapter 14. For in order for the gospel to be proclaimed throughout the world, he would have to die on the cross on Passover and would have to rise from the grave afterward as well. So that's what Jesus tells us here in that text. Well, that brings us to the last part of our text, verses 10 to 11, and that's the betrayal of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and Mark Uh, 14 verses 10 to 11, Mark writes, Then Judas Iscariot, and the then seems to connect it right to this event. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Think about that. The woman, money was no object to her. Whatever she could give up to, for Christ's sake, she was willing to do. The chief priests, they were more than happy to give up money for Christ, 
to have him killed. Judas was more than happy to receive money to have Christ betrayed and killed. So now the text kind of comes full circle once again. It started with the chief priests and scribes seeking to kill Jesus in verses 1 through 2. And now it ends with Judas seeking for an opportunity to betray Christ to them. The Passover probably should have, but didn't make them glad. But when they heard Judas offer to betray Christ to their hands, they were glad. That made them happy, being able to murder Christ. And they promised to give him money for it. And God would see to it that the right opportunity for Judas to betray Christ would happen to bring the cross of Christ our Savior to come to pass on the Passover. Without Judas going to them, that doesn't happen. Judas' offer to betray his Lord, when he offered to betray the Lord, ensured that Christ was going to be the Passover lamb sacrificed on Passover and not afterward after the crowds had dispersed. So despite the best laid plans and intentions of those chief priests and scribes, God's purposes were going to stand and Christ was going to die on the appointed time and day and place and no other time or day or place. The Apostle Paul, you might know in the New Testament, actually calls Christ our Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, he says this, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he's not talking about bread there, right? He says, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival or the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's Paul saying? We don't go to a temple anymore. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore. The Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, he says, has been sacrificed. Our Passover lamb. And is there a feast of unleavened bread? We don't go to a temple for it, but we still keep it. How? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's your whole life lived for Christ because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. God's wrath has been uh, satisfied in him, in our place. God has passed over you if you are in Christ this morning. And so I ask, are you in Christ by faith today? If I can use a figure of speech, is Christ's blood on the doorposts and lintels of your heart? Are your sins atoned for by his blood that on the day of wrath God will pass over you because you are in Christ? Christ is the true Passover lamb to which all those other lambs before that pointed forward to. It is his cruel death that was prepared by wicked men, but who was ultimately prepared by God himself for us before the foundation of the world for our salvation, that's what Christ was sent forth to do, to die in our place, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your purposes always stand, that the purposes and plans and plots of men, of wicked men, can never overturn your will and your purposes and your decree, but rather you make those things all work together somehow by your wisdom and powerful providence to, to, to fulfill your purposes. Just as Joseph, way back long ago in the earliest book of the Bible, his brothers tried to prevent his dreams from coming true by betraying him and having him sold into slavery, that they actually caused 
your prophecy in those dreams to come to pass. And in the same way, these chief priests and scribes and even Judas, one of the twelve, that their their plot, their conspiracy, their evil plans for betrayal ended up making your will come to pass just the same. We thank you that you sent your son as our Passover lamb, that he was sacrificed once for all for the sins of his people. And we pray that you would give us understanding into these things, that you would help us to keep the feast, as Paul says, with uh, sincerity and truth and righteousness. And, and let that be our continual feast and, and, and holiday, of a festival of sorts, in Christ. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, if they have not turned to Christ by faith, that you would do what only you can do, that you would open their eyes, give them grace to see their sins, their need for the Savior, and they would look to him and have life in his name. And we pray all this in his powerful and glorious name. Amen.